Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, let me, we had internet troubles this morning and our first two videos didn't download, so you didn't get to see the announcements, uh, announcement video. Let me call your attention to the bulletin. Make sure you're looking at that. Uh, and while you're turning in Matthew, uh, to Matthew, let me remind you about next Sunday, the Lord's Supper breakfast. Uh, we will have Sunday school at 9.15, just like usual, and then we'll have our Lord's Supper breakfast in the uh, gym uh, like we did last January. Uh, come 10.30, breakfast will be served, and uh, in the midst of breakfast, we'll take the Lord's Supper. No evening service next week, so keep that in mind. No Wednesday nights for the next two weeks. Keep that in mind. And then tonight, our Christmas Eve service is at 4 p.m. That's a time change from what we're used to, but that does a couple of things for us. If you have family uh, events on Christmas Eve, you should still have time to get to those. Uh, if you don't like driving in the dark, uh, then we'll be done about 4.35, 4.40, uh, so you'll be home before dark. Plus, men, that gives you time to go and do your Christmas shopping. Because <laughs> the stores don't close till 6, you've got like an hour, and you can buy everything you need in the Dollar Tree in an hour. Um, I'm sorry, you men who go all out, good for you. There are two or three of you still haven't done your shopping right now, I know. I know that's the case, so don't be offended. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Imagine if you were named for what you do right now. Your name is what you do. Uh, Etta's name would be Chases children while yelling at them. That would be her name. It's a mouthful. Uh, and yes, I'm picking on a few of y'all this morning, so just get ready. Uh, but I haven't told you who it is, and so now you're all worried, which is good. Ken Tilton stands and looks mean in a courtroom. I don't know if Ken Tilton could look mean if he had to. Carrie, is Carrie here? Can he look mean? I haven't seen Carrie this morning. Alice, can, can he look mean? I, I didn't think so, but still, I thought that was a good name for him. Uh, Lee Bird mixes various chemicals in a lab. Is that what you do, Lee? He's out back. Well, tell him I picked on him when you see him. Now, I don't know who this one is. I'm, uh, hopefully, this is me when I retire. Sits and watches TV. That, n nope, that won't be my name. Um, okay. Works on a long list of honeydews. How, how about that? that? Maybe that's your name. Uh, I don't know. I just came up with this name. I don't know who it's about. Talks a long time on Sundays. That was, that was completely random. But if that was your name, and, and you know, we, there are cultures where that's how they named their children. There's Lee. I picked, you on, picked on you, Lee. Is that what you do? Mixes various chemicals in a lab? There we go. All right. Well, that, that would be your name if we named you after what you do today. That, that would be awkward for a lot of us, um, complicated for everybody. But this morning, we're going to talk about the baby whose name was He is Salvation, named after what he was going to do. And we see, the, see this again. Mary was told what his name would be, but Joseph was also told what his name would be. And, and that's important that Joseph was a part of that. We'll see that as we get to it. Uh, Matthew 1, we're actually going to start reading in verse 18, and we'll read down 
uh, through 23. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother married and engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then it goes on, and Joseph wakes up, and he did what he was told. But our focus is Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 1, 20 through 21, where Joseph gets his marching orders where Joseph is told what will happen and, and what he is to do uh, when this happens or because this is happening, and then is told what this baby boy would be. And we're going to look at that this morning. Now, let's just start here at the beginning of the passage. Let's go back to, to 18, uh, verse 18. We're going to start there, cover a little bit of background, and then get into the meat of the message. Verse 18 tells us that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've already talked about this some, and I'm not going to rehash it too much this morning, but I do want to remind you, this was not a procreative act by uh, some god in human form that we read about in mythology and, and pagan religions, but this is a miracle by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. This was an amazing event so that this child in this virginal conception was fully God because he had no human father and he had to be fully God in order to pay an, eternally, uh, an eternal penalty that no finite human could. God had to pay the penalty for sin. He was the only one that could pay the penalty because he is the only one who is perfect. Anybody else dies for anybody else. It's nice, maybe you die for one person, but you could not have died for all of humanity. Only God could do that. So in this virginal conception, we have God, fully God, paying the eternal penalty for, for humanity. But because he was also, Jesus, was also fully man, completely uh, uh, human of Mary, he was humanity's adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I've talked about substitutionary atonement before. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but you can see the word substitute. He took my place as a human. He took your place as a human. He was, if, if, God, if God had died somehow without being human, then the transaction would not have been complete. It took a human to pay for a human. But it took a perfect human, which could only be done by someone who was both fully human and fully God, in order to do both parts. Die for me, but also, and represent me, but also pay the debt that I owed to God. So this virginal conception of fully God and fully human is no minor uh, detail to the story. It is integral to the story. So Mary is pregnant. Joseph was not involved. 
And verse 19 tells us that Joseph was, her, was a righteous man. Verse 19, so her husband, Joseph. Now, her husband, they, they were married. We, we say betrothed, we say engaged, but engagement then was not like our engagement now. They were married, except they didn't live together. Uh, possibly it was because of her age. She was a little young, the marriage was set, but when she was ready, she moved in with him, usually a year later, and then they would begin to have children. Joseph was righteous. It says here in verse 19, her husband Joseph being a righteous man. Now this righteousness here means that Joseph was a follower of the law. He did what the law said. So, in being righteous, he would divorce her. If you were here last Sunday night, I can't help but read these passages now without seeing the movie, the nativity story, run in my head. Uh, so it, it's, if, if you weren't here Sunday night and didn't get to see that, I encourage you to get that movie. It's called The Nativity Story. It was uh, uh, from 2006. It's great. But it'll put images in your head when you read this now uh, every time. He was, he was righteous. He could, he could not marry her. He could not say that was his child because it was not his child. He wasn't going to lie to protect her because he wouldn't lie. Ten Commandments said don't. He was a righteous man, and the law said that in this situation, he was to divorce his wife. So that is what he decided to do. He was going to divorce his wife, just like the law said, but he was also not wanting to disgrace her publicly, it says in verse 19. He was a man of mercy and compassion. And so, because of his mercy and compassion, he was going to do a private divorce. Now, of course, it would come out. Everybody would realize, wait a minute, they're not married after all, etc., etc. What this kept from happening was a public trial where he would accuse her of adultery. This would have been, he'd write a letter divorcing her, he'd give it to her in the company of two witnesses, and it would be done. And then they would go on their separate ways. The humiliation and those sorts of things would still be there, but he would not publicly accuse her, not put her through the disgrace of a trial because he was a man of mercy and compassion. Joseph was a good man. We, we talk about Mary and, and her motherhood of, of Jesus, and I think too often we forget the fatherhood of Joseph to Jesus and what a good man he was, how he was selected by God just like Mary was to be the father, the earthly father, the man who raised our Savior. Tell me fatherhood is not important, and I'll call you a liar and say absolutely, and we see one of the best fathers in the Bible right here with Joseph, even with our scant information on it, on him. So, Joseph has made his decision. He's decided to uh, be righteous but merciful and divorce her secretly. And after he considered these things in verse 20, after he put the plan in motion, decided this is what I'm going to do, I kind of get the idea that he went to bed that night mulling this over and, and, and you know just sweating it out and finally coming to a conclusion, this is what I have to do. And as it settles in his heart, his brain begins to shut down a little bit, and he's able to drift off to sleep. And then he has this dream. Verse 20 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph 
got four divine visits in these short passages. Three of them included a message directly from an angel. I'd be pretty wigged out after a while. I mean, like, come on. Can I, you know, just let me go. Let me do stuff. But there's a purpose. There's a reason. We see that God is guiding Joseph meticulously through this time. This was no easy task. This was no easy calling on Joseph, or Mary for that matter, but no easy calling on Joseph. He's going to find out, you're to be the father of this child. You're not biologically, but you are to be the father of this child. And every step of this fatherhood is going to be difficult for you. Y'all think y'all have difficult children. And it's not because Jesus was a difficult child. You are raising God in the flesh. We always get to fall back on, well, you know, my children are sinful. You know, they're sin nature. They didn't have that. Joseph's going, I've got the sin nature, and I've got to raise the Son of God. That's just a little bit of pressure. And God is constantly guiding Joseph. Do this. You don't know what's coming? I'm telling you what's coming. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. And we have these, these visions, these vivid visions uh, that Joseph gets. We're told about over and over and over. I believe God continued to guide Joseph all the way up to, well, we don't know what happened to Joseph. He's not mentioned again after this. We don't know if he died when jo Jesus was young or he, if he just, we know he was around at 12 years old, uh, but after that, we, we don't know what happened. Maybe he just, just wasn't a part of the story. It wasn't important to move the narrative along as far as God was concerned in guiding the biblical authors. Doesn't matter. We know he was involved. We know he was there. We know he was raising the Son of God, and we can bet that Joseph was constantly dependent on God for what he should do. And then we see this early in Joseph's life, or in, in early in the, 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 the nativity. So the angel shows up in a dream. He says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Interesting phrase, son of David. Not uncommon by any means. But nowhere in the Gospels is Son of David used for anyone but Jesus, except here. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a kicker. It's a, oh, wait a minute. Joseph's the Son of David. Well, see, what this does is it foreshadows Jesus' legal status as a descendant of David. We're going to see that here in this next little phrase that we look at. But get that in, in your head. Jesus' legal status, legal status as a descendant of David, because we know Jesus, the Messiah, will be a son of David, will be in the line of the, of the Davidic kings. And we know it's his, his legal status, it's, it's foreshadowing this, it didn't foreshadow it long, because in verse 21, we get the, the payoff here. The angel tells, to, tells Joseph in verse 21, you are to name him uh, she will give birth to a son, it says, and you are to name him Jesus. Now, the, the angel tells him, you, you, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That's his concern. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has gone on in her is exactly what she said happened. The Holy Spirit has, conceived, uh, the, has been conceived, uh, or 
The child has been conceived from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and the angel tells Joseph, you are to name him. You, Joseph, you are to name him. I didn't look at this earlier in the week, so you can can correct me uh, if I'm wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm going to just take a couple of seconds here and see if I can find it quickly. If I remember correctly, Mary was told... He will be called. Let me see if I can. Came to her and said that you know, she, he will be great and called the Son of God. He will reign. How can this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of therefore the Holy One will call the Son of God. Consider nothing is impossible. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Okay, Mary was told. Let me get back. I, I thought I had a great point. Don't you hate when those great points get messed up by what the scripture really says? Uh, Mary was told, you will name him. And that's fine. It was her child. It was, it, and, and at the time, no one thought there was a father there to name him. But the emphasis, the impact of telling Joseph is the same. You will name him. Now, this mirrors Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which Matthew is going to quote in verse 23. As a matter of fact, verse 21 is pretty close to a direct parallel of uh, Matthew of uh, Isaiah 7:14, where Matthew quotes it here in verse 23. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. Now, they didn't name him Emmanuel. They named him Jesus. Uh, we're not going to get into the, the differences this morning. Uh, the names are certainly different, but the impact, the name meaning something, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, God is salvation. Actually, Joshua, Yeshua, God is salvation. The name's the, the meaning's the same. The meaning, the impact is there. So, he, he quotes this, uh, he mirrors this, rather, Matthew does in verse 21. And when Joseph named Jesus, when Joseph said, as Zachariah said of John, his name will be John. When Joseph says his name is Jesus, what Joseph does is claim Jesus as his own. Don't miss the impact of that. Don't, don't miss the point of Joseph saying, I will raise this son as my own. He is my boy. This is that legal status that I'm talking about. Jesus is now legally Davidic. He now has all the, the uh, benefits, and at this point there were none, but all the benefits, all the rights, all the titles of being a direct descendant of, of uh, David. This is no mere technicality that Jesus is now Joseph's son. This legally carries all the weight of being a direct descendant of David. But there's more. Now, there are scholars who disagree on this, and, and that will always be the case. But as I have studied, I believe that the, the genealogy in the first part of Matthew is a direct genealogy. It, it doesn't include everybody. It's intentionally 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. That's just a numerical uh, use of uh, the, the generations. It leaves out a lot of folks. Matthew's making a point. 
But I believe that genealogy discusses Joseph's line. Because Matthew is much more focused on Joseph than he is uh, uh, Mary. Luke, I believe, is focused on Mary's lineage. And Mary's lineage goes right back to uh, David as well. Matthew traces it all the way back, uh, only all the way back to Abraham. Luke traces it all the way back to the beginning. Uh, so what we have now is we have Joseph's legal line and his adoption of Jesus as his own. So legally, people will say, well, he's, he's, he's jo Joseph's kid. Uh, and genetically, Jesus is in the line of David because of the Luke lineage in, uh, or the, the, the lineage of Mary in Luke. So I believe he is both. He is legally Davidic and he is uh, genetically Davidic. Uh, Davidic. Davidic. Uh, now, you disagree with me, that's fine. Come at me. I'm all right. I can, I can handle it. Uh, but I think that's where those two, uh, the, the emphasis of the two Gospels leave us. So, Joseph is now being told, you will claim this boy. You will name him. He will be yours. For all to see, for all to know, this will be your child. And the name that you will give him is not random, is not uh, mundane, though the name is mundane. You will name him Jesus. This was like naming him in English, John. A million Johns. Two million, a bunch of, you know, it, think of, a, it was just a generic name. Everybody had a kid named Jesus at this time. Everybody had a king, kid named Joshua. That's what they were naming him. Because why not? You look back in the history of Israel, and Joshua was a powerful name. Everybody had a kid named Moses, too. A lot of them had Abraham. I mean, you hit those high notes. Isaac was a popular name. Joshua was a popular name. There, there is nothing inherent in the name Jesus. Now, I know we don't do this anymore. Uh, you don't find many Jesuses running around uh, among English speakers. Uh, now, in uh, the Hispanic uh, community, there are a lot of Jesuses, but uh, you, don't, you don't find English, English speakers, I didn't mean English people, English speakers naming their kids uh, Jesus. But at this time, you did. I mean, it, it was, if Mary was calling out in the middle of Nazareth trying to get Jesus to come home from playing, She'd say, Jesus, come home, and 15 kids would show up. And she'd say, no, 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 not that Jesus, not that Jesus, not the Son of God Jesus. Oh, okay. All right, then he would come on, and the other kids would go to those, those homes. That's how common this name was. But the name's meaning, and upon whom this name was placed, gives the name the power. There, there's nothing magical about the name. There is something divine about the one who carried it. But the name did mean, does mean, Yahweh is salvation. It was carefully planned. It was carefully plotted. It was exactly what God wanted this child named. named da uh, Joseph, son of David, take Mary as your wife. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yahweh is salvation. Now, it's interesting. Yahweh is salvation is the name of the Savior. Well, Matthew is going to do it to us again here, and he's going to do it to, do it to us quickly, but there will be here in just a few seconds an implied unity 
when Matthew states that Jesus will save, not Yahweh. And I mean an implied unity between God and Jesus. His name, ironically enough, is Yahweh will save. And, and, or Yahweh is salvation, rather. And that is from whom salvation comes. But salvation only comes through Jesus. And the angel goes on to tell Joseph, you will name him Jesus, you will name him Yahweh is salvation, because he will save people. He, Jesus, will save people. There's a messianic expectation of salvation from the Messiah. This was not surprising that, that, that the Messiah, the, the Son of God, they, they know what they're having here. They, they're, they're catching on to his importance. So there's no surprise that this boy is going to grow up to save his people. The problem is what they were expecting. See, salvation was an obvious responsibility of the anointed Son of David. He was going to be king, so of course he was going to save his people. He was going to protect them from, in this case, Rome. But you could have gone back 500 years, and they'd have hoped he would have saved them from Babylon. And go back a few years longer, and you would have hoped that they, he, would, he would come and save them from Assyria. And a few other times it was Egypt, and some other times it was the, the Midianites and the Moabites and all these others over and over and over. They waited for this Messiah to come and save them. So they weren't surprised when the angel tells Joseph that this son that you are carrying, or that your wife is carrying, will save. I mean, the name tells us what he will do. The name says Yahweh is salvation. But the thing is, it's Jesus that will save, and not Yahweh. That's the message of the name. Now, I'm not excluding God from salvation. I'll get to that in a second. That, that's not at all what I'm doing. But he, in the Greek, in this phrase, is in an emphatic position. It's there for emphasis. It's in its particular location in the sentence for emphasis. He will save his people. He will do it. This blew the minds of Israelites. This probably blew the mind of Joseph. I mean, he, he wakes up from this dream and says, okay, wow, the Holy Spirit did do this. But wait a minute. My son is going to save? Well, of course, right. I mean, the Messiah saves. I got it. But in the Old Testament, the salvific act belonged exclusively to God. And now they are being told Jesus is the one who will save. It is enacted by Jesus. The message here at this moment in this short phrase is that God will not save outside the agency of his son. You can believe in God all you want to. You can believe there is a God. You can believe he's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And you can say, I worship God, and I, can, I follow God, and I, I sing all the songs to God. But if you omit Jesus, you have omitted salvation. 
God will not save outside the agency of his son. That's why you can talk about God on TV and in movies and whenever, wherever you want to, all you want to, and no one gets offended because there's no exclusivity to God. Your God's a rock. My God's an impersonal force. My God wrote the Old Testament. Eh, it's all God. But when you start talking about Jesus, you have named something specific that says you must believe in him in order to experience God. Not just a generic force, an impersonal stone, or even the God who wrote the Bible. God will not save outside of Jesus. If your hope is to experience salvation because of your belief in God, you will not do it. Your salvation only comes through Jesus. But they're talking here about salvation in the Old Testament sense, salvation in the Messianic sense, salvation in the, uh, uh, the rescue from other powers sense. This is going to be turned on its ear, too, right after the angel says his people. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people. Now, the immediate understanding for, for Joseph, for Mary, for others would be Israel. Oh, he's going to save Israel, which goes right along, right, with that messianic view of uh, the, the, the Messiah coming and rescuing Israel. But what we know, what we see begin to unfold later on, is this is actually all who will believe. His people includes everyone who will trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. They didn't quite have the scope. They should have, because we're going to see this in just a second. They should have known what was happening, but they didn't quite get the vision yet. Matthew Soon, in the next couple of chapters, begins the unfolding of this universal offer of salvation. And he fully reveals it in chapter 28. Now, when I say universal offer, that's all I mean, universal offer. Not everybody gets to get saved. Not everyone will be saved. At the end of time, not everyone gets to hear, okay, come on, it's all right, you know, everything's good. No, there is no universalism. Remember, we preach exclusivity in Jesus Christ. So not everyone gets to go to heaven. So there's, I'm not talking about universalism. I'm talking about available for everyone. All who will respond are his people. That's fully revealed in chapter 28 of Matthew when he says, Go into all nations and baptize. And, and the, the disciples have been, Whoa, you mean all the nations like Israel? And he's like, No, all the nations like all the nations. Like the Gentiles too. And they were skittish and hesitant. And they got kicked out of Jerusalem into Antioch, and it, became to, it started to be a little clearer. And then Peter got his vision of, of the, the food coming down and said, Don't call unclean what I have said is clean. And, and now go to Cornelius, a Roman, a soldier, and preach the gospel to him. And then Paul comes along and says, Peter's to the Jews and I'm to the Gentiles. And it just breaks out all over the world, the gospel does, because that was the plan all along. And we actually see it in Matthew 1, 1 beginning of the lineage when Matthew says of Jesus of his gospel at rather an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David messianic hope the son of Abraham universal hope because what was Abraham told your seed will bless all the nations that was the promise 
And they just thought, oh good, we'll be, get to be king maybe and rule everybody and we'll be benevolent rulers. No, no, no. Your seed, your offspring, the seed will come for every person in the world to have the opportunity to respond. And this is where Matthew, or rather the angel, really messes this up. We're okay with the, 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 the messianic hope, the, this idea of the, the king, the ruler, the anointed one, the son of David coming. Got it, good. Israel's going to be set up and, and, and set free. Excellent. And, and, and oh, we're going to rule the nations too? Because that, maybe that's what they're understanding when he, uh, when he says his people. Even if they had some sort of universal view. Oh, well, everybody's going to be his people because he's going to be a powerful king. And he's going to take over Rome. And he's going to take over uh, everybody else and Persians and whoever, the Greeks and all these folks. And we're going to rule everybody. So we're all going to be his people. Whew! Finally, we get to take the place that we are supposed to. And then the angel says, tax it on the end, not unimportantly, but as a slap in the face of those who would think anything else. She will give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. They wanted something else. See, this is a new salvation that is implied here. It's, it's unexpected for the Messiah to save from sins. That wasn't the Messiah's job. The Messiah's job was to come and save Israel. To free Israel from foreign oppression. They wanted a national political Messiah. And Jesus is not a national political Messiah. That is not his purpose. Jesus' purpose is not to overthrow governments. Jesus' purpose is not to uh, rule from the seat of a, the presidency or of the monarchy. That is not his purpose. His purpose is to forgive sins. And it fulfills clearly Psalm 130, verse 8. Actually, 7 and 8, I'll read to you. Israel... Put your hope in the Lord, Yahweh. For there is faithful love with Yahweh, and with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel. Ooh, national, political, messianic hope. Nope. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities, all its sin. Who will? Yahweh. Yahweh will. Yahweh will forgive sin. Here's this baby. Here's this Messiah. What are we going to name him? Yahweh is salvation. Great. Yahweh will save us. No. He, Jesus, will save us. He will be much more than just a political Messiah. He will be a spiritual Savior that will save his people from their sins and so that we don't miss the point Matthew over and over and over talks about Jesus's relationship with sinners Jesus's relationship with sin and I've got a bunch of verses up there don't bother trying to turn to them just trust me that I know how to read Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 John the Baptist came saying setting the way for Jesus repent because the kingdom of heaven Jesus has come near. Repent. Repent from what? Well, sin. 
verse 6 of chapter 3. And they were baptized by him, by John the Baptist, in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Folks understood that there was a need for sin confession and repentance from their sins. But at this time, they're just a little short of where to put that faith. John knows that he is baptizing for Jesus, not yet, though, in the name of Jesus, but he knows what's coming. Chapter 4, verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, picked up uh, John the Baptist's message. We're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to copy sermons. Not supposed to just preach what the other guy preaches. But this is a good message. We can preach this one every Sunday. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Same thing John the Baptist was preaching. How did Jesus know? Because he was the kingdom of heaven who had come near. Repent, turn from your sin. That is the relationship that Jesus had with sinfulness. The relationship is turn from it and come to me. Chapter 9, verse 2. Just then some men brought to him, Jesus, a paralytic, paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus responds to some naysayers who said, How can he forgive sins? And he says, For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, let me do the hard thing too. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. And the paralytic got up, took a stretcher, and went home. Because it sounds easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's a little harder to heal somebody. But just so you know I can do the first thing, let me show you how I can do the second thing, Jesus says. Verses 10 through 13 of chapter 9. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. See how he welcomed tax collectors and sinners? Well, the Pharisees didn't like that because when they saw it, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, Jesus said, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's his point. That's his purpose as Messiah. Not geopolitical, not national political but spiritual salvation. Chapter 11, verse 19. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, oh look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He was a friend to tax collectors and sinners to call the tax collectors and sinners to repentance. And then we begin to really see the salvation from sin fleshed out. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, he did not come to be a king, he did not come to lead a nation, he did not come to win an election, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for the sin, a substitute a representative, chapter 26, verse 28, and we see it happening. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then, just to carry the theme deeper into the New Testament and much later in life of the church, 
1 John 1 9. Go back to 1 8. If we, have, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus came for one purpose, and that was to save the world from their sins. The purpose of Christmas was not the manger, the purpose of Christmas was the cross. The purpose of Christmas was not gifts, was not the wise men, was not even the virgin birth, nor was it Joseph's goodness and righteousness in taking Mary as his wife. It was not the purpose of just an impressive presentation of a new baby. It was the cross. It was his death. That baby was born to die. And that baby was born not for your politics, but for your soul. Jesus came to save people. Jesus' name tells what he does right now. He is salvation. He is your Savior. See, Jesus kept the angel's promise. Joseph, take the boy. You name him, he's yours. You name him Jesus. For he will save his people from his sin, their sins. 33 years later, Jesus lived his name. 33 years later, Jesus was accused, went through a mockery of a trial, the whole way, not saying anything more than, it's just what you say, one day you'll see me coming in glory, one day you'll know. But all this that's happening has to happen. They took him, the, the leaders turned against him, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children. They nailed him to a cross. An innocent man, innocent of the charges, but perfectly innocent of sin. They nailed him to the cross. A few hours later, after saying a few other things, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do, he said, it is finished. What was finished? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. It was finished. He had done the job he came to do. The baby born died on the cross and did what he was supposed to. He kept his promise. Salvation was offered. Salvation was presented. Three days later, just like he had done with the paralytic that was let down through the, the roof, and he said, your sins are forgiven. How can he forgive sins? Well, just since you think it's so easy to forgive sins, which is easier, curing him or saying your sins are forgiven, get up and walk, dude. See, I can do both. It's easy to say, I forgave your sins on the cross if nothing happens afterward. But three days later, the baby born to die, the, the one who had grown up to be our, well, had been our Messiah, the, our Savior the whole time, but the one who had shown it and taught us for three years, the one that had died an ignominious death among uh, thieves and sinners, the one who gave everything for us, rose from the grave. 
He didn't stay there. Sin did not defeat him. Death did not defeat him. And we celebrate a baby in a manger because that day he rose and he gave us life. That is what we celebrate. His name is, he is salvation. Let me tell you this morning, he is your salvation. There's nothing else. You may claim a belief in God, but the agency of salvation is Jesus Christ. The source is God, but the agency is Jesus. We do not have salvation without believing in Jesus. You may think you're good enough. It doesn't work that way. You cannot find that in Scripture. All we find in Scripture is that our good enough isn't good enough. That our righteousness is like filthy rags. It is worthless. It is useless when it comes to salvation. Our salvation is offered. The offer began, well way back when, Genesis 3.15. But for our purposes this morning, for the image that we have in our head today, for the holiday, the holy day we celebrate, the offer began in that manger with that baby that was born to die, who did die, rose three days later, and came up from the grave saying, will you believe? Will you accept the salvation that is yours, that is available for you. So the question this morning is, will you respond? Will you respond to the offer? Or will you walk out of here having celebrated another Christmas, but not experienced the benefit, the power, the salvation that was introduced that Christmas morning? Do not leave without it. See, God is holy and just who God is. He's perfect, and he will judge sin, and he will judge it harshly. We are willfully sinful. We are fallen, and we are destined for this everlasting torment and judgment in hell, separated from God, separated from Christ for eternity. That's us. God is holy. We are not. We are separated, and we cannot bridge the gap. But Jesus, the baby placed in the manger, the perfect son of God, the adopted son of Joseph, the birthed son of Mary, the one who will save his people from his, their sins, the perfect son of God kept the promise that the angel made. He took our place. He took our sin on the cross. He died for everyone, and three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that he had the power to forgive sins. That's God. That's you. There's Jesus. Now what will you do? Repent of your sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, Jesus preached. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him, that only he can save you, and then live for him. Give your life to him. Everything you have, give to him. Put it on the altar and be done with it. Or just cry out to him, Jesus, I trust you for my salvation. Save me today. That is a prayer that God always answers. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of this baby. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, thank you for a good, noble, righteous man like Joseph. Thank you for the message of the angel that makes clear to us, if we haven't gotten it yet, that you sent your son to save us. 
And Lord, right now in this moment, may some lost sinner respond to your salvation today. Respond to this free offer of, of, of believing and trusting. And that's it. Giving them their lives. And Lord, may some saved sinner this morning respond in awe and renewed commitment to the Jesus who saved them. Lord, we pray that you would move in a mighty way in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your decision this morning? What do you need to do? Do you need to accept Christ? It is as simple as, Lord, save me. You do that there. I would love to hear about it. I would love to pray with you and encourage you. But my prayer doesn't save you. Anything I would walk you through doesn't save you. It's your heart turned to Jesus that saves you. Maybe you've asked Jesus into your heart. You've, you've been saved. You need to be baptized. You want to come and, and, and announce your intention. Maybe you need to join our church. Maybe you are a saved sinner that needs to renew the awe of your salvation. And you need to do it at the rails this morning. Praying up here. Praying with me or praying with Tom on the other side. Whatever your decision is, you make that this morning. You do business to God with God today as we stand and as we sing.